Well, howdy, Jay. Ben, internet. <laughs> internet. I somebody asked me. They were like, "Hey, are you are you going to have like a standard opening, you know, for the circuit?" And I was like, "You know, I I think I'm just going to roll with whatever mood I'm in that day. You know, it's going to be like the the opening is like a box of chocolates. You know, you never know. You never know what you're going to get." I think we should have theme music. It should be battle without honor or or humanity. For humanity. The, no, it's battle without honor or humanity. Honor. Nice. Nice. It's, it's, yeah. Cheering sounds. I could add cheering sounds. I see that here on the left. Maybe an elephant whistle, bullhorn. Man, the, the creative juices can go when you're trying to produce something. Um, Thanks everybody, listeners, for all the positive feedback that uh, that you've given me in emails and messages on on Twitter. Um, I also wanted to mention there is a YouTube channel. Jay and I are staring at each other right now as we do this in real time. Um, just pointing that out that there's a YouTube channel in case you want to watch us. Maybe someday we'll get sophisticated enough to throw up some of the visuals that we talk through because I have charts and other things that might be interesting. So you know aspirations uh, abound. Um, but capitalizing on last week where we talked about uh, what's going on in foundries, packaging and process, um, I had already been thinking about kind of this topic, but a few people hit me up in uh, Twitter DMs and, and mentioned doing it on really the, the deglobalization trend. You know, Jay and I, we've talked about this uh, a little bit on what it looks like when you're trying to bring some some form of the semi-industry back to your nation. Um, there's a lot of implications for this. There's um, obviously the geopolitical side, which we sort of danced around and can weave into this and will also necessitate, I think, another series of, of podcasts. But I want to talk sort of broadly about um, you know deglobalization. I'll sort of throw my point out there, Jay, and then I'll, I'll let, you, let you chime in. It, it's, it's hard to not appreciate that the semiconductor industry is a global partnership. Um, you know, even with talks with senior executives at all the name companies out there, you know, and I talk about, you know, look, what, what, when sanctions come down and governments are trying for, to, to get you to invest in, in, in domestic foundries or domestic technology, you know, they always keep coming back to, yes, we're going to do that. But, you know, again, remember the semiconductor industry is a global partnership. And I, and I think that's, an important framework to remember. We, we can dive into what regions have uh, a share of what, whether that's lithography or wafer or memory or foundry. But the meta point, and I'll let you just chime in, is just we can't forget that this is a global partnership. And more importantly, to satisfy the needs of the semiconductor industry, which is now a little over a trillion um, semiconductor shipped every year, it will always be a global a global partnership. Yeah, it, it, there is so much complexity and there's so many little bits and pieces of it. You know, even I, I've, I've been doing this for 20 something years. You've been in it at least as long. Like I, I am always finding some new company that I'd never heard of that actually, oh, they have this critical role to play in math sense, right? Or some random chemical that's incredibly important and there's only one vendor for it. Um, there's just a lot going on and it's it's everywhere. As much as the headlines are all about Taiwan, there's a whole lot upstream from that, or right, that goes into that, all kinds of inputs. And it, it's a pretty complicated, I mean, it's part of what makes it fun. There's always something interesting to explore and discover in this space. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, just, just, just doubling down on, on the points of every nation can be ambitious, right? China can, America can, Europe can, Japan can, Korea can, et cetera. Everybody can be ambitious, but they're just, they're never going to own the whole stack. And so I, I always just worry like how much say if said nation brings down sanctions and you can't end up, and I think you're seeing this right now, right? With some of the tension that's going between what what the U.S. is trying to say about ASML, and then Europe saying like, "No, we're not going to abide by that because we we need this to be a, a a global trade scenario." Is how much do sometimes those regulations maybe hurt you more than help you, even if your underlying intentions can be good, if that makes sense? There's there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there to unpack, right? There's uh, I don't even. I, not even sure where to start. I think once you start talking about nation state levels, it gets even more complicated, layered on top of an already complicated industry. Um, but it, it cuts both ways, right? I mean, there's there's lots of reasons why the U.S. put sanctions on China's chip industry. And there's some of that that resonates with other countries as well. You know, I really, I really think... The, the the Europeans there's large blocks in, in you know in Europe who who feel pretty strongly or in line with what the U.S. is doing even if they're individual companies or entities uh, that are going to are are going to object to it like ASML is going to feel a lot of pain from these sanctions right yeah but but they're a Dutch company and the Dutch government probably feels a pretty different way sure uh, and and so we'll, let's. We'll, we'll talk about it as best as we can. Um, I, I do want to take a step back, though, and talk about how every country now seems to want to have a semiconductor fab domestic. And I think that there is lots of good reasons why that's not going to happen, why it hasn't happened historically and why it shouldn't shouldn't happen. Right. Because I know like the, the big thing I've been hearing a lot about recently is uh, Mexico. Right. There's lots of interest in, in building up Mexico's semiconductor industry. Right. I talked to some people in, in the policy world about that recently. And and they sent me a list of questions beforehand. They said, you know, what are the best fabs in Mexico? I don't think Mexico has any, any fabs. Um, they have a couple they have a couple uh, OSAT facilities that are very good, but they don't have a fab. And then I started looking up like if you're gonna build a center of semiconductor excellence in, in Mexico, where do you even start? Right. Yeah. Like they have some very good universities there, but I don't think any of them have really advanced semis content in their electrical engineering department. Historically, for whatever reason, that hasn't been an area they specialized in. So now you suddenly want to grow a whole industry in Mexico from scratch. Absolutely, that is possible. There are lots of talented engineers in Mexico. Um, but is that really how the government wants to spend its energies? Is, is it something feasible? I mean, it's 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 possible. It's going to take twenty years, but it's possible. So, I, I think I mean we sort of started off with this being really complicated, and it, it is. If you want to change that, it's going to take a lot of time. Like we didn't just sort of flip a switch and suddenly we're dependent on Taiwan. It took twenty, thirty years to get here, and reversing it is going to take just as long. Yeah. And, and and I think, you know, when we talked about, you know, even this this last time, right, we didn't go deep on 
um, each nation's efforts as a foundry. I mean, we talked a little bit about how Intel's trying to um, be competitive in foundry, as is Samsung. Samsung's most competitive foundries in, in logic, or at least a good portion of them, are actually here on U.S. soil, right? Mem- memory, I think, may may still be in uh, in Korea. Um, but, I, you know, I think you look at, you know, we, we talked about TSMC only being able to do a small, small portion. Um, you know, estimates have far less than 10%. Generally, I think most analysts on the, the, the sell side are 4 to 5% of their capacity, which really just says it's not even in the entirety of their U.S. customers. It's some small set. I think you had pointed out like defense and, and a few others, right? Maybe Apple locally, if the government says you've got to have X percent of content to, um, to come to, to import to the United States. But I, I think just understanding to your point, right? Which is that one logic foundries are big, expensive. I mean, I, as far as I know, also, you know, ASML's sales are locked up for the next few years. It's, it's not like there's just machines coming off the table that somebody can just kind of buy to, to start a new foundry. Uh, it's a limited, <laughs> a limited resource. Um, it, it, it is the challenge, but I, I keep coming back to, it's not just even lithography. It's not just, um, the foundry, it's, it's the wafers, you know, it's the, um, you know, it's etching, it's everything that comes a part of that ecosystem that there's only small bits that reside in certain places and everybody relies on each other to get those done. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't even exist. I, in fact, I'd be curious. I don't know if such a stat exists, but per, per the entire needs of the, of the semiconductor ecosystem, what country has all of, all of X percent of all of those things, because I can't imagine it would be gigantic. It would be, they have some percent of all of those things, but like somebody doesn't have 50% foundry, 50% wafer, 50% lithography. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no majority in those key categories in any one country. We, we could spend an hour just talking about the denominator of that fraction. Yeah, what do you want for to sure. There, right? right, right. I mean, I, the U S is probably closest not closest, furthest, like has the, the biggest share of any of it, has the biggest share of every single part of that, right? But certainly we can, you know, end device manufacturer. But I, I think that's that's why the U.S. thinks the, the that we can get away with these sanctions is right. ultimately, even for pieces that aren't produced here, there are going to be dependencies you can trace back to U.S. companies and U.S. IP. Right. That's certainly the case with ASML, but I think it's it's true for everyone else, every other part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and I wonder too, I mean, I think you're right. I, I again, I don't know. I, I don't, I've never seen such a stat. I mean, you, you know, you look at uh, obviously Intel's here, um, applied materials, lamb, um, just, again, just companies that have pieces of that. It's not all made here, but there's, there's a lot of American companies in in that mix, um, obviously with the exception of lithography. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's interesting to your point, like the, the investments that people are trying to make. And I just keep coming back to, again, the, the implications of this or the implications to the rest of the ecosystem. Like, again, just going back to, you know, your point about, um, ASML, like, like being possibly hurt by these sanctions and then other countries, getting frustrated is, is, is how much does this off often hurt 
you know, hurt your overall ambition, you know, versus help it in other countries that might need to return the favor or put sanctions on U.S. companies trying to do those things. That's just kind of where my my head keeps just bouncing around. I guess the the positive ne- negative impacts or or unintended circumstances of of some of this attempt to to deglobalize the the semiconductor industry. So, I I actually think I mean there's a few a few things that come out of it. One is I'm a big believer in what do you call it multilateralism, like working with allies, like working with partners. And I think that's one of the great successes of the U.S. has had over the last 70 years has been its ability to work with allies closely. And so in times of need, like now, when we have concerns about China's military capabilities, we can call on our allies and get their help. And it's, it's particularly important now because for the last like five years, China has been going down this really sort of very ultra-nationalistic wolf warrior diplomacy track yeah. where they're where they're almost rude to everybody else. And it's a very, very sharp, aggressive diplomatic style. And it's, it's now coming back to haunt them, right? And they've actually, it looks like they've sort of stepped away from it. But they're now in a, in a position where they can't go to the Dutch government, they can't go to the Czech government, they can't go to all these different European governments because they're in-country diplomats have been insulting those host countries for the last few years about whatever random things. And now suddenly the U.S. is actually asking for a favor from those countries and right. China's saying, no, 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 don't do that. We, we were kidding. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's important to have allies. And, you know, there are lots of people who are going to argue, oh, maybe the U.S. isn't such a good ally and we've done all these bad things. Yeah, okay, let's not, I'm not trying to debate all of history here. But, you know, I, I think there are lots of com- countries that have benefited in some ways from being an ally of the U.S. And we've tried to do right by them yep. within bounds. And and so that's why I, I actually am pretty, uh, fairly high degree of confidence that these sanctions will take place and that we will have all of our allies sign up to participate. And China is going to be very isolated. Mm. Right? They're, you know, and... Uh, Hopefully, what that leads to is its approach to the world and recognizing that there is a there's a a better path, a more diplomatic path towards being integrated and still being able to get what they want, being able to satisfy their development goals without antagonizing the rest of the world, without picking a fight with everybody else. So I'm I'm curious about this, and you you lead to a point that I had been thinking about, and floated to again said said executives at a number of different semiconductor companies like do, do you think that there would ever be an official equivalent to what we're talking about allies and technology um to like a tech nato where said countries are in agreement with each other against a call it I, I hate to say China's a common enemy, but but somebody in who which they're they're trying to regulate and and use their leverage with again this in this case components um, as a part of that. I'm, I'm saying formally. Obviously, they could do this informally, like we we handshake, we talk. But you ever think something like that would be possible, where they're like, "Hey, we recognize we all need each other. Let's agree on said things, but 
this country is not in it. And so we're going to monitor them in some degree, right? They're, they're not in this, this tech note. I, I'm just curious if there's ever like a, ever could show up like a formal partnership in this, in this capacity. I mean, my, my initial response is that question is way above my pay grade. I'm just a, I'm just a financial analyst. Uh, in, in, investor relations, excuse me, international relations is, is beyond me. It's the other IR. The other um, IR. But from what I can tell, there are attempts being made at, at doing just that, right? What, there's the, the, the group of four, I forget what it's called. There's like US, China, sorry, US, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan are trying to put some something like that together. Um, or I shouldn't say they're trying to put it together. There's been talks about that, right there, and there, you know, there are other other blocks the U.S. is trying to do, put together in to sort of not not confront, but in, to sort of deal with China with other allies in other areas, right? Bring India into some sort of security arrangement, something like that. And I won't say never. That's never going to happen. But it's hard to do, especially because Very. so much of what we're talking about is commercial. Right, we're talking about companies, and companies are all going to have interests in their own interests at heart, which are going to conflict with their government's interests. Right? When it's when it's a military block, that's fairly easy. The government controls the military, and the military does what you know. Everybody gets in gets in gear. Um, but with when it's commercial, you have entities who are capable of pushing back and resisting, uh, and 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 I think that makes it much harder to one of those things together unless there's a clear some really really clear benefit to them which i think i think we were starting to reach that point with china and semis right it's, it's gotten so much harder for tech companies to do business in china over the last 10 years that when the trump sanctions when the trump trade war started and now these latest sanctions there's some some pushback from the from the chip companies, but they're they're not fighting it at a broad policy level. They're not vocal about it. They're not public about it. Yeah. Right. And and yeah, I just, I mean, I, I think it'd be interesting to sort of flip it around and think about could China respond in some constructive way? And I, right. I, I published on on this. Like, they don't actually have an easy response to the U.S. sanctions. Right. And you look at their their response since October. To, to the to the China chip sanctions, they've been very muted because they don't want to make a big deal about it because there's no obvious counter for them, right? And so I, I, I wonder if how that will change as China's economy continues to advance and develop, are there going to be areas where they do find some leverage, right? And, and the one that sort of leaps to mind first and foremost is batteries. Like they have some really, really big battery companies. Could they cobbled together i don't even know where other batteries are made south korea yeah south korea japan like uh probably some minerals and places where they actually have friends that they could cobble together and it's 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 very hard for them to do that so so that was that was what i actually wanted to 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 get your perspective on too just to define because i know you you're much closer to the to the chinese side um so just just for everybody listening, looking at this, and in logic, China is basically 70, 17% of capacity and in memory, 20%. Now, the, capac- the, the logic is mostly, mostly lagging and far, um, uh, nowhere near leading edge, basically super legacy 
um, clearly no no advantage or levers there in, in proprietary IP other than the fact that it's it's cost effective. Similar to memory, um, you and I know a big company who's using <laughs> some memory uh, from them uh, because it's cheap. Um, that may not always be the case if if the United States doesn't not, want not to. Not anymore, do- they're not. Not anymore, they're not. <laughs> okay, dropped in said products, but we're we're using said memory. But again, no no competitive advantage, just kind of cost. So I'm I am curious again to your point on that. So like you mentioned the levers, and 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 maybe it is battery. Um, but does I don't think we I think we need I think most companies still need them for trailing edge. Like I'm not sure um, that we uh, other foundries have enough capacity trailing edge to meet the demands. I, I kind of feel like that is there. So again, not that that's their, their advantage is they have a lot of capacity in trailing edge, not that there's anything unique there, but I don't know global foundries. I don't think has enough to satisfy the needs of the industry. Intel definitely doesn't. I'm just curious your perspective. Like, is it, is it, does it come back to that basic fundamental point? Well, we've got all the capacity nobody else does. Yeah, I I, uh, I think that argument has lost a lot of its steam in the last six months because I there there aren't a lot of segments that are seeing tight capacity anymore, right? Um, in, even well, in, in trailing in the, edge, like trailing edge was going to be the last to to come off, and I think for yeah. the most part, uh, we we starting to see a, a lot a significant loosening in legacy capacity just in the last few months, right? And and the China fabs felt it. Two months before that, right? Uh, quotes, quotes getting from China Fabs now for you know two hundred millimeter wafers and sixty whatever nanometer, sixty five nanometer and up, one hundred eighty nanometer and up. I mean, those those prices those prices are down fifty percent this year, at least, because um, they're just desperate to fill fill their lines. So I, I yes, they have capacity, but I don't think that that's a that's that, that's not a scarce resource, and it's certainly not a reliable one because I think there's a lot of still a lot of plans in the U.S. to add capacity, and I, I think that's one of the big changes that's taken place is the the U.S. industrial base, especially automotive, has woken up to the fact that they're very dependent on China and that they're at the end of the queue when it comes to capacity, and they are very likely to take some steps in the next few years to address that. Uh, and you know, I'm actually I'm I'm more worried that the U.S. is going to have overcapacity in trailing edge in a year or two just based on some of the plans people have in place. Mm. So I, I don't think that really. That so, and then is, is long advantage. So, okay. So I, that, that's a good point. I think, and, and, and I've sort of pointed this out too, with some things I've said on Twitter, like, like the, the one area that I think it is constrained is, uh, is the leading edge and call that seven, five nanometer and beyond, obviously three nanometers is going to be super constrained from TSMC. Um, but before I make a broader point about that, everybody's also trying to, you know, call it onshore some manufacturing. I, I again think this is going to be really hard. So, so I guess the question is, how much maybe leverage would China have on the manufacturing front, where enough companies still have to go there to have some form of assembly? Um, do you think that could still be an area? Maybe their leverage is going to be where we could still just pull on something there we have some leverage with assembly because you might not always be able to cut us out or at least everybody may not be able to cut them out so so if i was a u.s company and i decided i want to stop any reliance on china today 
where where would where would I be stuck, right? And I think um, in semis, it's it's maybe it's 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 packaging and test. Like I'm probably pretty reliant on uh, on on China for that at this point. Even if I'm getting it from a U.S. or mm -hmm. a Southeast Asian company, chances are the facilities in in China. And then there's final assembly. Um, everything else I can probably source somewhere else. But that being said, those alone are a pretty significant piece of of the, of the pie here, right? And it's it's not something that's easily easily fixed. Um, I, I couldn't shut off my my backend flows quickly. It would be really really scary to do that. Yeah. Well, so and I, I think a few it, years to move it. I think it airs to at least where you're seeing some successful moving out of China for for those parts of assembly um, is not terribly high volume areas. Um, you know, PCs are doing this now. Every major PC OEM is moving into some version of, of Taiwan. Actually on that, on that point, I'm not sure if, if you browse the halls at, at, at CES or if you, if you had time, but it was, it was interesting, you know, and I, I tweeted this, you know, years ago, we, we should have hit you up when you were there. Cause that would have been fun for the three of us to do this. But years ago, Benedict Evans and I would just go in the Shenzhen halls and just look at like everything that they were making at scale. You know, it went from like e-cigarettes to vapors to selfie sticks, like just stuff that was going on, like all contract manufacturing. And it was interesting because this year um, there was a lot less from Shenzhen, but partially that, that was probably because of a lot of COVID. I don't think they could all get out of the country, but there was a lot more from, you know, Malaysia and Vietnam, um, India even France, like other countries had shown up with contract manufacturing boots. And again, not that they can do that scale. It was just several years ago, those companies were never there showing contract manufacturing and now they were. And I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, but I, I think that that scale part is the, the key, right? You know, you, you, you and I could go out and, and mill up on an iPhone and we could spend, you know, that could be our hobby take a year and build on our own iPhone, right? But that that's, you know, th that's not the hard part. The hard part is doing, you know, 400 million yeah. of them a year. And, right. and there's no place else in the world that can do that in China. So right. I was working with a company uh, two, two years ago, and it was the middle of COVID, so that was a little bit of a factor. But we, we just couldn't get to China. And so we, we wanted to manufacture a little IoT device, and we were trying to get it built in the U.S., and it was so painful. It was just so painful. Yeah. Right. Every step of the way, we had to. We had a contract manufacturer, but they could. They they just they didn't know how to do things. Right. Oh, what's that? We've never seen that machine before. Like we had to like literally rent a machine for them, ship it to the to the, their floor ourselves, and then go out and train their employees how to use it. Right. And every every time there was a change, it was a hassle. Like. In, in Shenzhen, none of that exists. Like, oh, you need a new machine? All right, I'm going to call up the guy down the block. He's got five. He'll lease them to me for three months, right? And he has a team of people who just do that, just work on that machine, and we'll, you know, we'll contract them out for, for that time. Yeah. The, the 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 depth of manufacturing expertise in China is immense, and I I think I mean I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Is just like manufacturing as a as a competitive advantage, manufacturing is a skill is something yep. I don't want to say we lost it in the U S but certainly China has an immense, immense advantage. 
and and we definitely don't have it for consumer electronics the way that China has. Yeah, not not even close. And 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 it's tricky too because um, a lot of organizations who did you know work with China for mass manufacturing at, at scale, you know, they imparted a lot of their own proprietary manufacturing knowledge to aid in that efficient efficiency. Um, you know, I think you know Ben Thompson pointed this out in a note, you know, a bit ago about how much Apple has also invested in knowledge in to their foundries, and that collaboration has led to a, a situation they just can't get out of because they have created, in some cases, like manufacturing process that the said companies couldn't do on their own to help them scale their products, and that's not going to get get moved out. But Apple's not the only one that's done that, and so you kind of again come back to this. What can I do at scale? What can I can't? And and that's why I again I, I sort of just come back to what leverage could they could they pull in this again if something like an unofficial tech NATO happened and tries to hit them with sanctions? Like what levers can they pull? And I just I still feel like this element of manufacturing could get really tricky if they wanted it. I mean, again, they could just shoot themselves in the foot. And so your argument could be, well, they won't do that. There's, I don't know if you've seen this stat, but but somebody gave this to me. I, I can't say who, but that in some regions, Apple is almost two percent of GDP. So like if if they just were like, oh hey, we're not going to like they would shoot themselves economically in the foot to 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 cut out cut Apple off from something like that, right? So you could argue there's an yeah. economic reason that they don't, but I just keep coming back to if everything hits the fan and it just gets really ugly, what could they pull? And I just you know, at scale manufacturing is one of those things they could get really difficult with if they wanted to. Yeah, I saw a stat that said there are 5 million people, 5 million people in China employed by Apple, not directly, but through multiple layers of contractors and subcontractors. And so putting 5 million people out of work, even, you know, even in China, that's a big number. You, yeah. You just, they, they, they don't want to mess with that. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I've been watching, uh, I, I've, I was watching this video on TikTok recently about, a, he's a, this guy is a captain of a giant Suez Max container ship. And he, uh, he, he's in dry dock now, somewhere in East China. And it's just like this incredible, it's, it's basically a manufacturing, they're, you know, they're, you know, um, cleaning up the ship and re overhauling it, right? So it's basically a manufacturing process, refurbing a ship. And it's just like, it's a staggeringly complicated, like laser guided everything and like hundreds of people. And just it, like, just the sheer amount of capital invested in, in that and having all these skilled workers on site, able to do the job. It's, you know, and, yep. and there's, you know, three ships just like his sitting in the next, in the next two dry docks over like yep. that, that scale of things. And that's, you know, that's not chips. That's just very straightforward metal bending. And, uh, yep. Yep. I, I, right. And, and you, you see that too. I mean, one of your really alarmists, we can look at, um, production of naval ships, China versus the U S China is just off the charts yeah. ahead of us. I mean, our fleet yeah. is much bigger, but theirs is growing ridiculously fast because it's a huge, huge capacity to build ships in China. Yep. And so, yep. And so you well, sort of apply the same, same logic applies to, to manufacturing. Of electronics like you know you think about it from hong kong to guangzhou it's about 100 miles and there's thousands of companies and millions tens of millions of people employed and they're all doing some part of electronics manufacturing and it's just yep. like that's it's so deep and so evolved it's 
it's complicated. And, and yeah, I do. I, I just want to. I, I want to give a shout out to uh, Patrick McGee at the Financial Times. Yeah, he actually just published. Good. He just published on this, and I, I, he, he, you know, I did some. He quoted me a couple times. And I did some background work with him, but like, he really, really dug into the subject. An amazingly sourced piece. Just looking at like how China got so deep in how Apple got so deep into China, and talking on those topics you were just mentioning, like how they really helped Foxconn and its and its subcontractors learn how to do this um and and apple apple's special they, they're clearly in a cast class of their own when it comes to these things but you think about all the other companies that aren't apple who taught their chinese jv partner how to do these things and then said all right you know we're exactly. not going to do this at home we'll just let you yep. do it yep no and and there's plenty of those and and you bring up this this other excellent point is that they their economy at large related to this is not just the manufacturing. They're also very good at exporting those goods from town to town onto ships, onto packages at a scale that no other country could do. And and I didn't know this, you, you probably know this, but I bought, you know, one of those um, shipping containers for, for storage in the backside of, of my yard. And, you know, for people who don't know, I, I have a small mini farm and, and animals and I needed something to put like my tractor and a whole host of other stuff. And I was like, why, like, why, how are we able to buy, you know, these shipping containers for, you know, $3,000. And they're like, Oh, you know, China just makes them, ships them over here and leaves them. They don't want them back because it would just cost too much. So they just keep making new ones on their grounds, new shipping containers on a regular basis. I was like, so there's people out there just mass producing shipping containers and all they're there one time disposable usage it, and I was like, that's insane. You know, yeah, they, they, China doesn't want them back. So we can just sort of sell them because it just, it's cheaper for them to make a new one. And I was like, that's, cra that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hopefully some of that will ease up now that the shipping industry is rationalizing, but <laughs> probably also means you can get them for even less now. Yeah. Uh, believe me, there's, 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 but, but the point is there's just so many parts of that, of, right. of, of their machine that you just, you just can't do, especially at the costs. Right. I mean, as long as they, I would, I would be curious to like, this is an absolute hypothetical, but if China was to ever become democratic, would that drastically, I, it would, it would have to have some impact on econ economics. Like they would start charging a little bit more. Well, let, let's take the, 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 the politics out of it. Like, set aside the issue of democracy or any kind of government change in China. I, I think just the law of economics and demography are going to dictate changes in this model. Right? And we've already seen it. China is no longer the low-cost labor hotspot. Right? China labor has gotten fairly expensive. Right? Certainly, if you want to hire like a semiconductor engineer, that's super expensive. And yeah. we saw that in over the last year, like there have been multiple uh, labor actions, strikes or whatnot at Foxconn and other plants. Right. And that and that, you know, there's there's lots of reasons behind that. But it, a, a big part of it is just sheer economics. Those those employees want to get paid more. Uh, and so and you, you know, add that to the fact that China's labor force is probably at the point it's shrinking now. Labor in China has gotten expensive. Their advantage right. is not low-cost labor anymore. Um, right? That's why textiles are moving to Bangladesh, right? Places like that, right? Because it's lower, it's much lower-cost labor. So, I, I think we're we're heading to that point now, where where China's 
I mean, I think that's the root of all this is China is looking for its next leg in development. They've done really well on 30, 40 years of being low cost labor. They've maxed that out. And now they need to find new sources of sort of fundamental economic growth. Right. And um, they have to move up the value chain. That's sort of right. But the, the problem is once you get to a certain point in that, you, it becomes much harder. Right. And I think to some degree, they're a little bit stuck. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. So I want I want to end on this this topic because I'm it's something I've thought about and I'm and I'm sort of curious your take. Um, you know, I wrote this article a while back called um, "The Great Tech Wall of China," and it was really just me pointing out, you know, that they are continually trying to keep themselves in a box or at least do a lot of stuff locally, keep people out, but to some degree, they're having no or just not having the same success taking their whatever their ip is or product or solutions and, and and as global as possible and so i'm so i've always thought about this so what what's the broad like how dependent would the chinese ecosystem on like let's just assume they figure out semis they figure out you know more in memory and they're completely self-sustainable well for the from an economic standpoint how critical is it that they take those technologies and have global success or are they totally fine just being self-sufficient to their own their own content no their whole economic model is premised on exports right and so if they move to self entire self-sufficiency with assuming the other side of that trade agreement reacts to that and cuts them off China's mm -hmm. economy would be a, a big mess like this is a, this is a very serious problem with, with the Chinese economy right now is it's incredibly export dependent. Mm. Um, if you look at like the domestic Chinese economy is in some ways dominated by the big state-owned firms, or even and of course not so big ones too. Right? Sure, but sure. but they're they're all losing money hand over fist. Right, none of them are profitable, right? and they they make their they make their they, it's it's viable because they get cheap loans from the banks. And the banks are propped up because they have huge pools of U.S. dollars that they've gotten from the export economy. Yep. And so, if if China's export engine stalls, they have to sort of redefine their whole economy. They're, they're probably going to have to do it anyway. But as it stands now, they're all they're, it's it's all about exports. Yep. So so in this case, like like so again, come back to like semi. So a part of for for this investment to make sense or for them to onshore semis, it can't just be for local products. They need other other people in the world to buy those products, which means they have to be competitive or or this, this model is not going to work. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, you, we, I think most economists in China and a lot of serious economists outside of China recognize that China has to shift its economy from a very investment-driven place where mm -hmm. it is today to a consumer-driven one. And so I would argue China is better off not worrying about self self reliance on semis and instead focus on growing its domestic demand, growing its domestic consumption, because because that that ultimately will be the big uh, the the best way to save their domestic companies and set, prop up their domestic economy, because once you once you start to see a big domestic market supporting local companies that will that will shift these all these trade equations incredibly right and and 
you know, there, there's some serious structural changes that that will entail. But I think to make it again, let's bring it back to semis. Um, one place we're starting to see that a little bit is around electric vehicles. Right. This is this is my big big topic of the year. Is Chinese electric vehicle makers are on fire. They're all growing twenty, fifty, hundred percent a year, um, and they they need a lot of semis. And I think that's a lot of China's semi industry today. Domestic parts are going into mm-hmm. China's auto industry. And if you know, and it's only EVs are probably twenty like percent of China's cars today. If they get to Eighty yeah. percent, then that's enough to support a pretty, pretty healthy, robust anti-semiconductor industry. Right, that's a good point. Interesting. So, do you do you think there will ever come another scenario like we saw with with Huawei, where where product companies there just get cut off from the rest of the world um, products? Because because I mean, I, again, I tend to agree with you, right? If the, don't don't worry about onshoring semis as long as you can get it from other places. What happens if they can't get it from other places? Then that completely destroys their consumer electronics industry as a whole outside of a few pockets like you point out. So that's why I kind of go back to how much of this is an attempt at a defensive, you know, we need to do this just in case versus the reality of, you know, could, could they truly get cut off from 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 components from the rest of the world? I think that's the big, the big question I still have about the U.S. government's intentions. Are they, are they just trying to cut off China's military and its advanced compute capacities, or are they trying to stifle the entire Chinese economy? Right. And if you talk to most U.S. government people, they say, no, no, it's just the military. But no one in China believes that. Everyone in China assumes that it's the whole Chinese economy. And, and cars are one of those places where it's going to become very, very clear very soon what's going to happen because the, you know, the U S government has the sanctions weapons and you listen to those policy people talk, they're pretty excited about this shiny new toy they have. And so I, I'm, I think it's very reasonable to assume that there are mm. going to be a lot more companies added to the entity list or whatever sub list that, you know, leads into that. Um, and very likely that some of those will, you know, really crimp. You do that enough times, you can really crimp. Lots of other parts of China's economy, not just exactly. the electronic stuff, but the automotive exactly. stuff. Exactly. Right? I mean, what if, if the world has autonomy? Somebody really have autonomous vehicles, and China cannot get access to advanced semiconductors for any exactly. autonomous vehicle companies. That's it. They're done. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And so, I mean, and that's the thing is like, our, our, you know, uh, U.S. U.S. companies who are dependent on that revenue don't want that to happen. But I, I agree with you that that's that's the risk. Um, this, I'm sure, is a topic we'll revisit multiple times, even though it, it stresses me out and just makes me want to accelerate digging a bunker in my backyard. <laughs> it's very stressful. It really is stressful. <laughs> All right. Well, good chat in this episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening and can continue to give us your thoughts and feedback. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.